Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Hey guys, ready for our annual 80s kids Christmas trip? Uh, Leo, what is this car? Yeah, full marks for the gullwing doors and everything, but I'm not sure it's roadworthy. Oh, come on. It's a classic. You wait. I'm sure this baby will take us some amazing places. Uh, there's loads of machinery and stuff on the back seat. Uh, where's Justin going to sit? What do you mean, where's Justin going to sit? Where are you going to sit? Don't panic. I asked the previous owner about that. He said he used to be able to fit his best mate and his mate's girlfriend up here in the front. He said the girlfriend was so comfy that one time she even nodded off before they reached their destination. Small, were they? I'm sorry, what? The mate and his girlfriend. I take it they were small. Diminutive. Short-stacked. Knee-high to a grasshopper. Half pints. I didn't think it diplomatic to ask. What's the problem? Oh, uh, nothing really. Uh, just pass me a slice of double pepperoni. Not before we're about to share any time in a confined space. <sighs> Come on then, let's get this over with. So, apparently, when this baby gets up to 88, you're going to see some serious shit. What, like speed camera flashbulbs? Or police cars? You know, the speed limit's 70, right? Come on, we'll give it a go. When it's quiet. Besides, with the three of us in here, I doubt you'll find a stretch of road long enough to allow us to accelerate to anywhere near 90. Apparently, if I press this button, we won't need roads. Then let's never press that button. Why not? Because I don't want to find out what that eerily ominous pronouncement actually means. Oh, it's no good. Now you've said that, I really want to push it. Well, go on then. Let's see what happens. Wait, what? No, you are kidding. This thing has death trap written all over it. If you press that, maybe one of the gold wings will open up and we'll be ejected to our doom. Or we could find ourselves airborne. Uh, would this be a good time to mention that I get airsick? Have you got vomit bags? Wow, this thing really pokes when it hasn't got road friction slowing it down. We'll be up to 88 before I can even finish this... doing that again that's for certain well no seeing as a train just ran over my new car i think there's little more to it than that leo i never want to see the wild west ever again i hate manure never mind the horse dirt 
don't want to see freaky future incarnations of you two dressed as women in my nightmares, but I don't think I'll get the choice. Yes, and I can't believe we had to ensure that Justin's parents met and fell in love by pretending to be Cylons and inventing punk rock. I can see this year's trip has been, if anything, less successful than our Titanic expedition. So I'm going to make like a banana and leave. Split, Leo. Make like a banana and split. Oh, I always wondered why that was funny. Now I get it. So, what's for tea? Chicken. I'm a vegetarian. Nobody cooks me a chicken. Look, I'll hydrate you a vegetarian pizza and we'll put our favourite movie trilogy box set on, okay? This should help us forget all about it. Uh, by that, I assume you mean the Back to the Future trilogy box set, uh, what you described as the trilogy we can all agree on when doing our uh, top fives, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a, a reasonable uh, way to describe it. Uh, and, and in fact, in preparation for this episode, I sat down and watched the lot and I can say it, it still kind of holds up. Although, obviously, there are reasons why we have chosen this new year to do Back to the Future, being as next year uh, will be the year that all of Back to the Future happens in the past, as opposed to any of it still happening in the future. But we shall get to that. I suppose it behooves us to ask a question at the beginning of this episode that is pretty obvious. That being, if you had a time machine, which period in history would you visit? And I think that I would probably visit the 1980s because we're 80s kids and I've got very little imagination. Ian? (laughs) Well, that puts you on script. Well, my honest answer is I'd love to just jump a thousand years into the future and see what it's like. But if you want the past, I I feel like I missed out on something in the 1960s. I want to pop back there and enjoy a bit of that fun and games. And Justin? Uh, well, yes, I would have actually said 1985, so I could, <laughs> I could watch this film for the first time. Uh, but uh, since you put me to the post, um, I'm going to say, oh, I think I'd like to go back to Victorian times, but there, there, I would have to be um, one rich and also some kind of steampunk inventor so it probably isn't actually victorian times but it's the victorian era i see in my head yes I think actually the, the other thing the other thing that pops into my head is to visit uh some kind of uh edwardian time uh and see if english villages like that really did exist which uh, I doubt that they really did. But, you know, you know, we could check. Uh, I think that's the point. Go through history fact-checking. No, that never happened. No, <laughs> nothing was ever like this. Um, so, yes, that, the, the pedant's time-travelling uh, expedition. But that's not what we're here to talk about right now. Uh, well, it is, kind of, obviously. But we're here to talk about Back to the Future. So uh, maybe the first thing to, to talk about is uh, our memories of that that dim and distant time, 1985, and how it was we encountered Back to the Future for the first time. Ian? Well, uh, I saw it at the cinema. Uh, Justin? No, uh, seriously. Uh, <laughs> it was it was just after we moved to Swansea, I think. And what, what time of year did it come out? Was it near Christmas or not? I can't quite remember. I think it might have been a summer movie. I'm, it might have I'm, summer I'm movie. getting a feeling. Was yeah. it summer? I don't know. I can't remember, personally. <laughs> I, I did have like a free, it was like a, 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 I think it was like Quavers or maybe it was something else, a, a, a British savoury uh, 
corn or potato based food snack that uh if you collected tokens you could go get the uh, board game of back to the future which you had like a small collection of deloreans all trying to get back to time together with their with their converters on the top um so yes uh glowing memories i think uh, we'll get into it more deeply as we go there but yes it was it was contemporary as a kid justin yeah, I've, got, I've got a feeling i didn't go and see the cinema because i've got very vivid memories of the other two films uh, where I was in time and space watching them. and But I don't have that for Back to the Future. I don't remember watching a lot of it on video again and again and again. So possibly that was my first time encountering it, which seems bizarre, but it, it must have been. I guess. Well, yes, because I, I remember that I remember getting into all the hoopla. And I think this was my first uh, blockbuster thing that they stoked me up for post Ghostbusters, which um, sort of Ghostbusters changed my life it showed me what cinema could be and i think my first impression of back to the future was that it wasn't as good as ghostbusters which actually in retrospect is a little bit unfair uh, because it doesn't have as many jokes in it as ghostbusters but that's not that's not important really but I, at the time uh, i got the sort of they used to bring out magazines of like photos and stuff, things that now are covered by internet websites. You had to put them in a magazine, really. Back to the Future, the official magazine companion and all that. And uh, I, I read all about the, the actors and, and, um, all of the stuff. And I think there is a, an element to which as well, if you're 10 in 1985, like I was, or somewhere in that area, there's a lot of gags or details certainly details that are going to fly by you uh, when you're watching Back to the Future due to the fact that the thing that makes me marvel watching it 30 years later is the obsessive level of detail that everybody got into to make Back to the Future, that the time travel isn't really, you know, if you actually look at the uh, situation as it unfolds, it suddenly occurred to me how patently ridiculous it was. They Obviously, the pitch was, well, some backyard inventor makes a time machine. And then, you know, the first person who actually uses it properly in anger is some random teenage kid, because that's what's going on at the pictures uh, these days. And then the minute they sat down to have an actual story meeting about it, they went, well, you know, how does a, a backyard inventor get this stuff together to make this incredibly powerful time traveling device libyan terrorists libyan terrorists leo it solves all our plot problems well it's very interesting as well that um uh, for the first time i mean this is the thing back to the future is a movie every time you watch it you notice something new that in the initial scan of all the clocks the camera lingers for a second over a notice board in which it tells you that the Brown estate burned to the ground. Yes. And that explains in, in just a momentary, if you could be bothered to think about it, which I did yesterday, but have never before thought about, where Doc got all the money to spend his entire life inventing bizarre things because it, it was the insurance money from his family estate burning down. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's the level at which this film is operating, that they'll explain everything, including how this guy spent his whole life uh, inventing the flux capacitor and doing no real or meaningful work. And they explain it like that by just having a thing on a notice board, which obviously, as it is later shown that Doc has the propensity for dwelling on the, the key moments in his past, he would, of course, pin such newspaper clippings to a notice board in his garage or whatever, because 
it was very important that that happened in order to give him the liberty to pursue the sciences for his entire life. So, I mean, yeah, it, uh, it has oft been noted on this show that the script uh, for Back to the Future is passed around at script writing college as an exemplar of how to write a really great script because not a line of dialogue or indeed uh, a newspaper clipping pinned to a notice board is wasted. And, and this is, yeah, this is a rare thing uh, and it and, is still a, a well-oiled machine. And ironic as the script was rejected, rejected over 40 times by every major studio. Disney Disney rejected it on the grounds it was too dirty. I don't know, kissing your mother? What's whereas, wrong with whereas that? everyone else rejected it because it wasn't dirty enough. Because what, teen comedies? Teen comedies with, with no nudity and no, you know, sex stuff in it. That's not going to sell. It was an innocent that's time not- in 85, Leo. Innocent time. Well, no, that's the point. Only Disney wouldn't take it for being too dirty. All the others were like, no, it's Porky's is where it's at. If you haven't got any kind of... Uh, boobies in it we're not interested and so so basically yes it was like it was caught painfully between two stools those stools being does it have enough boobs in it does it have enough little enough incest in it well uh, one exec was concerned that people would shun a film with the word future in its name Uh, presumably this was the cynicism of the 80s about the impending destruction of the world in nuclear war or something so he wanted to have the name changed to spaceman from pluto which i think we can all agree on is a missed opportunity (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i mean it it is interesting an interesting movie in the fact obviously because it was so difficult to get made uh, unlike many, you know, if you throw a brick, you can hit a movie that that speculates that it might have a sequel. But this is one of the few movies that speculates it definitely won't have a sequel. Because, as they said, if we'd have thought that we were going to make another one, uh, especially one that continues on. Well, for, we, we may not have done the cheesy to be continued ending because then we're kind of locked into what happens at the beginning of the second movie. Second of all, even if we decided to go with it, we'd never have put the girlfriend in the car. Yeah. So We'll talk, you know, about, we'll talk about that when we get to two, because I have a few things to say about it. As you say, you know, after one, obviously, uh, the, the people are, well, I don't know, are people less glowing? I think they don't say, I don't think that you can say the same thing for the other two movies that you can for the first, that not a line of dialogue is wasted. But uh, yes, we, we've hardly done with Back to the Future yet. Uh, so, yes, I mean, the other thing that sprang up is that, um, yes, all of this ridiculousness, like Backyard Inventor, Teenage, DeLorean, Time Machine, blah, 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 is is kind of uh, compensated for by the, the, as I said, obsessive level of detail about, I mean, what they're really doing is they're creating time travel through having that one set, which is the sort of the village square or the town square, redressed once as the 80s and once as the 1950s. And what's really interesting is that the 1950s version of Hill Valley uh, Town Square is like a museum. I mean, they really curated it to that level. It's like this exemplar. How much more 50s could this 50s town square be? The answer is none more 50s. It's about as 50s as it could possibly get. Whereas when you look at the 80s, 
they have the problem of the fact that they're living in the 80s, so they've tried to do the same thing. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that it's one of the few 80s movies where they try and make people dress as if it's the 80s, as opposed to other films where they put them in whatever the whoever paid the promotional consideration for the fashion budget, which is where you get all the sort of notions of 80s hair and, and shoulder pads and all that kind of stuff. They even mock this in Back to the Future, that that's not really how people dress and that they're actually trying to do the same thing on both ends of the time travel of make it like a period piece. But one of the periods is 1985. But yeah, it's, it's really impossible to curate the eighties uh, when you're living in them. That's the problem. Well, yeah, it was, it was different when they got to the second film. Again, we're leaping ahead a bit because then the eighties were, were a thing of the past, which was looked back on with a certain irony. Oh, shoulder pads. <laughs> they weren't far enough. They didn't. Yeah, they weren't really far enough away. I mean, that's a failure on a different level, which again, we're skipping forward to the second movie before we, 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 we get in there. But yes, now you could curate the eighties from a more dispassionate point of view, much the same as you could curate 1955 in 1985 but yeah i mean it's not a big problem it's just the fact that the 80s are very lived in obviously because they're just well you know what what are we picking out of the 80s there's no way of telling we're living in them we don't know so just dress it normal street be as normal as possible everybody and then the 1950s is like a a cartoonish world of 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 90 you know just like oh there's a ronald reagan film on at the cinema and these these songs have been released and they're in the record store and here is the 50s diner and uh and uh, haha they don't know what sugar-free drinks are and blah 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 you know well it's because it's it's a, it's a 1950s theme park as as most time travel stories are or you know historical stories are these days you go to kind of you know a, a very simplistic postcard version of that past people remember it's for to invoke the nostalgia i don't think it is simplistic though it's it's an attempt i mean spielberg's uh kind of done this i mean he's obviously a producer and i think he's it's his thing for um, well, I, I, know, say, like I say, I don't say simplistic or... to say it's, it's not a complex job to do these set designings and, and so forth and, and knowing what tone to strike. I say it's simplistic in the sense of that we'll, we'll cherry pick the elements that we want to have there that just scream 1950s at you. It's, it's a tonal. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, that's what I'm saying. That's why you choose the word curated. They want to give people a 1950s. Ex- I suppose that's why well, you it's, say it's time travel tourism, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it is. It is. Yes, there is definitely an element of tourism to it, an element that kind of obviously when they get to make sequels almost disappears. Almost. I mean, the third movie has quite a lot of it's got a different kind of tourism in it. But yeah, the 1950s one. And it's it's strange because uh, obviously the 1950s were very big in the 1980s. And I think looking at Back to the Future tells you why. Uh, the 1950s. Well, it's, it's to do with the age of the creators, isn't it? I mean, basically, you're talking about exactly exactly why you look at Lucas, who's obsessed, with, you know, with, with his kind of American graffiti. Obviously, you these are these are directors, people that grew up in this time, so they have. Uh, uh, you're seeing things through their kind of vague memories of 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 being quite young during this period. And indeed, uh, it's, it's, it's quite romanticised, as everyone tends to their their own childhood to a certain extent, and they're young, young. I don't know how old they would be making this film, but I imagine they'd be reasonably young, uh, it, what the 50s would be to them. 
it is ironic that, you know, the 80s are as far away from us now as the 50s were at the time this film came out. There's a fact that yeah. makes you feel quite old. If they made this today, it would be leaping back to the 80s and it'd be full of 80s theme park we go to instead. Well, exactly. But I think, yeah, I mean, but the thing about it is that I think that I don't think that they were old enough. Uh, they, it, you know, like that you'd, you'd have to presume, therefore, uh, that Steven Spielberg was as old as we are now uh, when he was making, which he wasn't. I think it's more to do with something that's very clear. You know, when you take the full historical context, if you notice in uh, Back to the Future's 1980s, a lot of things are covered in graffiti. Uh, there's a drunk sleeping on the bench in the park. Uh, they're quite casual about the way that everything's gone rubbish in the yes. 1980s. It's just kind of mentioned. Oh, yeah, of course, this is the 80s where everything is rubbish. And then in the 1950s, everything is clean and well manicured. And this is all a made up thing. It's a nostalgia dream. But yes. the American people as a whole believed that the 1950s oh, were course, a pretty yeah. darn fine time to be I, alive. And yeah. that by 1985, everything had disappeared. You know, cynicism had set in. There'd been Vietnam. I mean, that's what it really is. I mean, it's kind of very subtle anti-Vietnam thing it's like yeah then vietnam happened and now we're in the 1980s well, well, in, <laughs> when we go to alternative 1980 in the second film nixon is running for his fifth term and saying he promises to get everyone out of vietnam this year that's the newspaper headline yeah yeah exactly so it's yes back to the future it's, strangely an anti-vietnam tract <laughs> but it works as a very convenient kind of, of theme doesn't it to kind of to, to create the kind of juxtaposition of characters out of time it, it, it helps very much the fact that you've got or you set up these very two thematic kind of age period, periods in time. So they, therefore, yes, they heighten the 50s to kind of to make that more dramatic. Uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, there's there's much to it, I think. that we see, Well, I mean, apart from anything else, uh, the 80s is, is crafted uh, as a place where everybody's living with the consequences, again, of the actions yes, of people. I, I was going to say... Where the, they fell short. The 80s that we start out in is, in many ways, you know, it, it's it's a less than perfect world because, you know, uh, his dad hasn't manned up, apart from anything else, so it's a less than... And one of his, bro one of his brothers is in jail as well, I understand, so it's... No, 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 it's his, it's, that's a running gag. Cousin Joe, uh, Uncle Joey, uh, who is his... Uh, mother's brother is always in jail throughout the whole thing. As they, I said, you know, we try taking him out of the playpen, but uh, he just cries and cries, so we put him back in there again. So, yes, he doesn't get out of jail. He's in jail all the time. I don't think he was ever referred to again after that, was he? He was referred to as... No, there is an, a one more reference to that going on where uh, he's in jail, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it is, yeah, it's a throwaway gag about the fact that... Uh, that uh, brother Joey is 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 a, a jailbird, loves nothing better than bars on his windows. <laughs> uh, so shall we tuck into the first one with a with a with a hearty spoon of joy? I think this is the reason yeah. we're all here. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, I thought I think we've kind of come quite a long way uh, already. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that I realised can't be or realised yesterday can't be ignored about the uh, continued timelessness and success of the movie is uh, the cast who mm. are uh, singularly uh, fantastic 
just yeah. across the, you know, I mean, it, it, quite easy picks to say, you know, oh, well, a film starring Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, that's going to be interesting. Um, but then, of course, you've got uh, Crispin Glover, who is bonkers, but yeah. nevertheless exactly right uh, for the part of, of George McFly. Tell um, me, um, have you watched the Eric Stoltz footage of Back to the Future on your box set? Uh, I may have once possibly watched a bit of it out of morbid curiosity. And your conclusion after this experience? I seem to have remember it not being very good. Yes, but if you get sacked from a film, it's, it's probably, there's probably some reason to it, isn't there? I mean, Michael J. Fox is, I think, uh, one of uh, history's uh, most underrated actors at this yeah. time. Well, he's I, just I so likeable, isn't he? Bastard. Well, think- it's, it's not just that. It's the fact that he is simultaneously a lead and a character actor. I mean, he, he doesn't really vary much out of the things that he does. But then he brings such a lot of nuance to those things that he does that that's fine. Yes. I mean, this I think, you know, any great movie, I think, relies on a lot of things. And the thing that makes it sets it apart that's something you're going to love is the character performances in it. And, you know, the same way you could love kind of Star Wars for kind of Han Solo and various kind of cast in that. I think the reason that I think people love it is because of him, really, because, well, that him and Doc Brown, I think. Both of those characters, uh, or sort of rather, those actors, uh, Christopher Lloyd, um, bring something that is just very watchable. I mean, they all do. Uh, the other characters, the other, the other actors do as well, but particularly those performances. And Michael J. Fox, if that was just a, you know, teen, you know, actor of the time playing that role, it could be much more kind of deadpan and relying on the other things to, to, to kind of make it more interesting. But yet what you get is a performance that is kind of it's got something to it. It's not just I'm young, attractive guy in this film. Um, the way he reacts to things, it's just it's kind of every time you watch it, you're kind of captivated by it. Well, well, the whole thing. I mean, this is I was reviewing the performances that I know of his in my mind because uh, there are a few films I haven't seen. But usually uh, Michael J. Fox plays one of two things. One is if he's winning or he's not a loser, basically, yes. then he tends to be someone who's likable despite the fact that he's a bit of a douche. Yes. Uh, I'm looking at the hard way for this, where he's the actor playing against James Woods yes. cop. And then, but usually, far more commonly, he's a loser who ever, you feel should be, uh, is being given a bit of a raw deal. And none, you know, Marty McFly plays a rock guitar. He has, I mean, this is the thing. You, when you look at it, he's like, uh, uh, you know, in a band. He has a, a, an attractive girlfriend and so on and so forth. And yet his life is somehow, you know, he's seen as a, a slacker, a loser down, you know, his family are not wealthy or what have you he's somehow seen as as not achieving and one of the things that michael j fox uh got a lucky break in is that he lived in a time when someone could be like that i mean if you made a film now about some guy who was pretty normal had a normal girlfriend and a normal fairly normal existence you go well you're not a loser you're just some guy whereas in the 80s of course i mean let's not forget that his big reward for fixing the past is a a massive four by four gas guzzling toyota um this is the 80s you know the age of consumerism and and it's like if you're not making a bunch of money and you know realizing your dreams uh as 
massive piles of cash and uh, goods, then you're a loser. And he managed to turn that and spin it and make people believe in that, even though actually it's patently ridiculous. Uh, Marty McFly's life prior to his time traveling exploits wasn't, you know, Crimea River wasn't really that bad. Um, and yet he could still sell you on the character being likable and, and having sort of disadvantages, which he must overcome. Well, that being that Huey Lewis of Huey Lewis News thought he was just too loud. I, I get the feeling that he comes from a bit of a discontent family. I don't get the feeling that he's terribly close to his older siblings and his, his mother's unhappy and his father's a wimp and a failure. So, you know, I, the, the, the siblings don't really get picked up on later films. We don't know how those relationships rounded out, but they seem to be better people for having a better upbringing from their more together, confident parents. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it is. And then there again, we come back to this thing that the failure of the present is laid squarely at the doorstep of, 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 you know, past generations in this movie that, you know, the parents screwed it up. Well, God, do something um, about your kids. Yes, and then, of course, the thing about it is that the fear is that it's all going to happen all over again when we get to the second movie. One of the things that really did linger in, hauntingly in my memory from the first film was the photograph of people with people disappearing as they got erased from time. And that's obviously a mo- things disappearing from photographs or printouts is, is a motif that's recycled again in later films. But that first photograph of people fading away and then Marty fading his way, away as well really haunted me. It was the thing that most kind of stuck with me as an image after the film. You guys probably had completely different experiences, but... In a way, it is the least plausible part. I mean, time travel is always problematic. I mean, they settled very much here on the model. The the, the reverse model, uh, the television series Lost had a model of time travel uh, called Time's Arrow, or What Happened Happened, that if you know something happened in the past and you go back to the past, you, there is no way you will be able to change it because what happened happened, that no matter what your intentions are towards that event and whether you thought it was good or bad or whatever, if you try and change it, it's not going to make any difference because time is an arrow and it, what happened happened. Uh, back to the Future does not subscribe to this. It subscribes to a completely different model of time travel in which... If you go back to the future, uh, back back to the past, sorry, and kill your grandfather, then something, well, you will fade out of all your family photographs and eventually disappear. But the, the paradox will be allowed to stand uh, because there will be this kind of buffer zone in which time sorts itself out. So you will have been able to kill your grandfather, um, but then a few minutes later you will erase yourself from history. Uh, and this comes back again as a, a, an actual plot point. Um, <clears throat> when in the second movie Biff creates a paradox in which he couldn't possibly have done what he was and still be where he was. But let's not worry about that until we get to the, the second one. But, uh, yeah, it does uh, have a whole philosophy of time travel, some of which is explicit, like the photograph, and some of which is kind of implied. Um because, uh, for example, when we were watching yesterday, um, there's a bit obvious. There's the famous bit where the doc is trying to connect the plugs to the clock to harness the lightning to make the, the time machine go boom. And then he's pulling the wire and it gets caught in a branch. And he has to slide down. And he's like making his way along the front of the clock tower. And he looks down and says, like, oh, I could fall. And Sue went, well, yeah, but he can't fall because if he dies now, he'll never invent the time machine which will mean that none of this can possibly have happened. 
So he knows that he can't die. I was like, but does he? Because no. time travel, uh, kind of, well, but he says, well, it doesn't matter if he dies because it won't have happened. Because he won't have invented the time machine. Yes, it would, he'd be it, dead. It, history will shape itself into an alternate future where he never created that time machine. But trousers except and time. Of course the, yes, except of course that would mean he was never up the clock tower because he wouldn't have known the lightning was going to strike it in the first place. Everything would no, no, have no, gone no. the same. That's not how the time travel works in that film. It, it's uh, but but it must. I mean, the point is that it's it's like what I realised was that there's this implicit thing of if the action that you're taking out. Um, directly impacts the sort of the journey through time the line of the prime time traveler then you are insulated because no, if you I, make I, it I, so I that that journey never happened then everything just resets um old biff old biff uh travels back in time it's the second film now gives himself the almanac and of course you know from yep. the lead scenes he dies and so he he's, yes, he's, yes, that's right. he's not he alive in the future to go back in time and give himself the book is he but the consequences no. Of the, of the chronology remain. I mean, you change the past, you create an alternate universe where the future unfolds in a different way. But all the people who from that old, now alternate timeline that never happened are still, you know, unless they've erased themselves from history, are still knocking around, you know. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, but the point is that uh, this is what I'm saying. Old Biff wasn't affecting the time traveler. He became a time traveler to give himself the almanac, but when he got back to the, the, 2015, he was no longer a time traveller, so he was no longer insulated from the consequences of Well, that. Marty was a time traveller, and he was not insulated from the for consequences of separating his parents. Uh, no, yeah, but that's because um, Marty... What I'm trying to say is this, there's a difference between the person... Like, if the Dot never invents the time machine, then none of that can have happened at no, no, all. No. The time machine The time machine is already an event in the past. Whether he invented the future or not doesn't matter. It was there in the past due to alternate timelines. And so what effects it has on the future will carry on. Doc Brown could have fallen to his death. I'm standing by that. That's my position. Feel free to disagree. Well, then where would Marty go? He couldn't go anywhere. No, because he'd, he'd, he'd have a time machine, but it wouldn't take him back to yeah, anywhere relevant. he would relevant. be trapped in 1950s. That would be the consequence of, of Doc Brown falling off the clock tower. But that means that unlike the uh, the other bit where they create the alternate 80s, there's no way to fix someone like dying in the past. You can't fix that. You can go try and go back earlier. <laughs> if you can get your time machine working. I suppose yeah. you could do that. It gets very complicated. Yes, uh, yes, that, yes, death has consequences. Uh, actions I have consequences. So. It is a, I you know, you, when you watch that, you don't, I don't think that's implied that people are safe, uh, from what you, what, the, 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 the idea for certain it. things. Because there's enough drama there. You know, no, yeah. no point he would realize, he wouldn't, he, he would, you know, it's, well, as I said, as I, I yes. kind of go, oh, it doesn't matter what I do, and he wouldn't feel no. an, at all any kind of threat, would he? Oh no, as I said to my wife, I probably there's those if, if you don't know if you've seen them, those pictures of like in for in some uh, Oriental country somewhere like Vietnam or something, they've built on the top of a mountain uh, uh, walkways made entirely of clear super hardened plastic or super hardened glass or something, so you can walk around and look down and see an entire mountain or a chasm underneath you now. Obviously, health and safety standards notwithstanding, probably if you walk on those, you're perfectly safe. But that wouldn't mean I wouldn't, you know, I would even consider it. So, yes, I mean, there's that. that it, it's not a dramatic point. The point is, it is an intriguing question. You know, yes, clearly, if you're 
paradoxical action has no effect on the mechanics of time travel itself, just on uh, things like your very existence. Don't worry about it. But there is this sort of question, if this action would call into question the existence of the mechanism for time travel, what happens? Now, Ian says that would be fine. I think there's more to it than that, but obviously it's never explored. Well, it's just like, it, like there are certain slipstreaming elements, places you can go where, well, now you're calling into question whether people could time travel in the first place because the time travel machine won't exist. Whereas, you know, if you don't exist, who cares? Doc Brown can still invent a time machine even if Marty McFly doesn't exist. Yeah, I think we're going down a bit of a cul-de-sac here. My interpretation yeah, of it is that, yeah, that consequences happen. So I think I time think travel is, is central to the the theme. That's all I was trying Martin to say. Martin McFly so can time travel back in time and kill Doc Brown if he wants to, and then there's a future where the time machine isn't invented. How this paradox resolves itself, I don't know. Generally speaking, what stays dead stays dead, as far as I can tell in the Back to the Future universe. Once you killed somebody, oh dear. Well, there we go. Yes, I mean, it's, it, I mean, what, what, it always struck me as a bit ridiculous when, it, for example, in the second movie, uh, Doc Brown says, yes, I'm living happily in 1885. Even at that point, you're like, well, no, he's not now. He's dead because you're in 1955. And he was already, oh, sorry. you know, I'll, I'll at the time of writing this letter, I am happy in 1885. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but he says, you know, he's alive in 1885. Well, you could say that about Shakespeare. He's alive in 1573, you know. It's, he was just assuring it's, his friend, it's okay, I'm in the past, things are cool here, I'm trapped because I don't have a time machine that works anymore, but it's all good. I'm having a wonderful time living my life as a cowboy. Have a good life, Marty, and repair the time machine, then destroy it. Bye. Yeah, I know. No, it was just it, it's not so much his comment. I can understand where he's coming from. Yes. It's more Marty's reaction. It's all relatively. Well, I guess this is what the this is what the movie tells us. I mean, this is the thing. It, it, it's like uh, time travel is always a bit of a headbender. Yes. So yes. Uh, as they said about the second movie, uh, it's incredible to have been allowed to make a movie in which at one point one of the characters has to explain the plot to another one of the characters with the medium of a chalkboard. Although that is so, quite yes. glorious. I like, I like a good exposition scene. Uh, I, some people may have been confused. I could get my head around it because I, I like time travel stories. But uh, I, comment has been said, the second film has so much plot to get through that the character moments were a bit more stifled in the second film. Would you disagree? Um, I think, well, I think it's it, that kind of, uh, I don't think they ever intended uh, to make, and I think there was also a little bit of a, we're making a sequel. I can't believe this for a start. They're obviously grumpy about the fact that they didn't think they were ever going to be allowed to make a sequel to the first one and that they left themselves with a bunch of problems to solve, which they could have very well done without. And second of all, they therefore set out to make a movie or to write a script. I don't know. Maybe there was some sort of uh, thing where it's like, well, we'll write the script for this. And then people go, well, that's too complicated. And then they'll die in development hell. And, you know, Zemeckis says, you know, this is my favorite of my movies that I've ever made precisely because it shouldn't exist. Mm. Like people should have said, no, this, this, this is too much. And, and yet they let me get away with it. I totally, you know, 
got to make this movie and that's why I'm so happy about it because I would never have got to make this movie otherwise. And it is this thing of, I think what distinguishes each movie or what distinguishes it as a trilogy is that it's the same central characters and then every movie tries to do something different. And so the first one is a sort of character piece about your parents screwed up and now you're going to go back into the past and help them not unscrew it up, which will unscrew up your present. Well, the second one ostensibly is going to be the same thing, but in the future. But then when they came to it, they're like, that's just another story problem. That was a gag. You know, something has to be done about your kids. Well, in order for that to make sense, something has to happen to to screw up the kids. But that's not really what we're interested in. So let's get that out of the way as quickly as possible. Well, and it, one of the it, things that's in, indeed, they they duck the issue of the kids being in trouble fairly early on. And it has to be said, I know they didn't really think they were going to have Jennifer with them for the for the story, and so they write her out. But it's it's quite gratuitous, and and a failure to try and think through the problem, make it work in their favour of having an extra member to the team who can be brought up to speed and have things explained to them. Uh, I mean, Jock hits her with his date rape device, and she falls unconscious. And then later on, she wakes up and sees her old version of herself and faints. And then for the entire third film, she's asleep on her porch, even though it's dystopian 85 at the time they leave her there. It's like, oh, girlfriend, quick, drug her and dump her out in the open and let's just get on with the story. Just to give you the philosophical headache again, yes, they dump her in dystopia 1985 on the porch and then Doc reassures Marty and it turns out to be true that that time will reset around her. So uh, this does actually give the lie to the idea that uh, just alternative universes sprout left, right and centre. What happens is there is one timeline. We can talk about that for an hour solid. Time travel is always confusing. Let's just draw a line under it. They... You know, ultimately, it's like, let's leave her there. Don't worry. Uh, reasons, she'll be fine. Let's go have yeah, fun, no, Marty, my young adventurer. Let's not worry about, our, about your girlfriend's subplot anymore. <laughs> yes, time will reset around her and Einstein the dog. Apparently, that's what'll happen. <laughs> so, yes, so that's, yeah, I mean, that that's another implied piece of time nonsense that is i mean these things are intriguing you know they're worth exploring elsewhere the reason i bring them up is it's like well honestly i've never really thought of that as a plot device but somebody could totally write a story about that and this idea that there is only one timeline but it can be messed around with and then it resets to what it should have been quote unquote should have been depending on what happens in the past and the future how very strange I'm more focused on the whole kind of dumping of Jennifer. It does seem a bit of a failure. If you've got it there, you oh, might yeah, as well no, use totally. the I mean, the more that you, yeah, the more that you go into it, the more it's just like, well, let's get rid of her. Let's yes. do this. Let's <laughs> shuffle. You know, the second one becomes shuffle people around a bit so that they're in a particular configuration in order for the barnstorming Western third episode. But I mean, they, they have, I mean, yes, the thing about it is the history it gives Back to the Future Part Two its place in the grounds that it's it's like so bizarre. It's such a bizarre movie, um, and and you know it's always a golden you know twenty minutes when you see you know Marty from Back to the Future Part Two crawling around the prom at the end 
you know, and he's in Back to the Future Part One. Yeah, it's definitely. very few movies in which a character goes through another movie they've been in, like hanging around in the background as the events of the first movie continue to unfold about them. Um, trying to be some kind of time ninja or something. Well, uh, awesome. I will let Justin have some words on two, but I was going <laughs> to complete my monage. Uh, I'd say two is my least favourite, but that's not to say that I hate it or dislike it. It's just, it's purely where it falls in the order of things. It is because I don't, I don't feel they properly seized on the whole future aspect. It's kind of a gag. The whole future is just one big gag. It was not a yes, serious attempt. The, the plot is enormously dense in terms of explaining the motivations. I did feel it was a bit unfortunate that we were revisiting 1950s because it feels like, hey, uh, let's invoke the first film and everyone remember how good that was. It, you know, it, it's like, it makes it stand in the first film's shadow by doing that thing there. Uh, so for recycling 1950s and for not properly doing the, the future aspect, which I was looking forward to seeing immensely, incidentally, two fall short in a few places. Certainly the, the other two I remember much more sentimentally. I never saw two in the cinema. I was in hospital with a dislocated hip. Uh, so I saw that post third film on, on video and it was quite strange to fight, discover, but they don't spend the entire film in the future. They just give them around there for a bit, then go elsewhere. Okay. <laughs> well, I have one word to say, and that word is hoverboard. Yes. I, I don't. Mattel want have got to see, get working on that. It's due in the next I few months. I don't want to see a real. When I watched Go Back to the Future Part Two, I didn't. I, you might have wanted to see what you know a, a, a realistic version of of what thirty years in the future. I don't want to see that because the whole thing is this kind of. It's got. Um, I mean, Back to the Future has got this as well. This kind of magical feel to it that it's you're not really watching something that could happen it's kind of fairy tale stuff it's kind of wondrous and a lot you know a lot of it's very much the product of a lot of 80s films had that kind of thing but back to the future kind of got it in this very tight package they manufactured it um and back to the future 2 is a continuation of that i love the fact that it envisages the, the original film um, because that's fun, right? You resolve that, and then it's still not fixed. It nil still needs to go back. And I, I thought it's fun, but I loved the future. I loved all the jokey stuff. I thought it was brilliant. I want, I wanted thirty years in the future to look like that. It never was going to look like that, you know. I didn't seriously believe as as we were approaching two thousand fifteen, um, you know, that you really are going to get all these things that's that's uh, prophesized. But I enjoyed at the time that version of it, which was crazy, you know. Um, but I'd say again, it's, it's not a real place; it's future theme park, no. isn't it? Yes, but it, you know, it's like it's all the spirit of it. it. The whole thing is kind of heightened reality. It doesn't ever feel like I'm watching a serious depiction of time travel, and it's basically the universe is created to tell the stories. And what you start getting, and particularly in the third one, but in this you get the idea of. Uh, it's not just about the consequences of actions that you have, but it's about the fact that things in time are on this kind of loop. And so you get these repetitions, these echoes in time. So you get the hoverboard replicating the kind of skateboard in in Back to the Future 2. And you get the scene with, you know, you get the same the same things happening again. And that's what and then it, it and then you get that again in the third film. Um, and that creates you know this this kind of cohesive universe it's not reality but it's a but but it's actually reality in terms of these films they create and the fact that these things keep happening again and again and so that there's all these little references in all the films you watch you keep catching these things that we are you know destiny we are stuck 
these things are repeated. You can kind of yes. change and make but and so therefore like those things have to be kind of crazy because they wouldn't actually reality exactly happen and you wouldn't get a future version of a skateboard just for them just to make that 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 statement so the whole thing is orchestrated and created to make this universe work um so that's why i love it really i mean i think i probably i mean what i think the thing that astounds me really about this trilogy is that unlike a lot of trilogies You'll get a film, you know, that generally a lot of films are standalone films, the first one. And then the second one, then you look at them and they go, OK, now these second films are not quite the same. Whereas Back to the Future, it somehow manages to create a standalone film. And then the other films are all part of that as well as a trilogy, because they kind of the second one kind of wraps around the first one um, in a way that I've never seen in kind of films do that. Um, I just. You know, I, I love Back to the Future 2. I mean, I just think that all the kind of choices, however jokey they might have been about the future and going back, I just thought is just genius. I just, and I know, I know I understand your, your feelings about the, the plot, but you do kind of go, thank God they got rid of her. You just think, you just get over that bit. You know, you're just like, okay, those things are done and everything else is happening at such a speed. Girls are boring. So many things going on. That you kind of go, oh, I didn't even think about it. You just kind of go, good, right, move on, do whatever needs to be done. Great, where are we going now? And then you get, as well as that, you then get the, uh, the bring in the idea from an alternate reality. So then you have the future, you know, the present, the alternate present, which is another flavour. Like, this film just keeps giving you more and more stuff. It's like, oh my God, my mind is being assailed by science fiction ideas here. Now I've got parallel universes and... I, you know, it's like bewildering, but kind of wondrous at the same time. I, it's just. I do, do remember watching the second one in the cinema and I do remember the thing of like sitting in a cinema in what, 1988 and yeah. being like, uh, okay, this isn't, you know, you, you could tell that the future was uh, in retrospect, the future of the, from 1985 is weird is actually uh, a joke it's a joke about the future of 2015 as seen from 1955 not as seen from 1985 you know flying cars and all that kind of stuff um and and you know i mean there are a few wry sort of uh they they way overestimated for example the popularity of max headroom in that 80s themed cafe and, and and stuff like that i mean the things they got right totally by accident were things like the town hall getting turned into a shopping more which i was like yep that would happen and uh, and you know the social networking information coming up on the video phone that is also true but these are things that they happened to get right because they were just trying to cram a bunch of details in i still don't have a pizza hydrator or indeed a hydroponic garden that comes out of my ceiling but uh, you know i'm sure they're coming next year so that's well a few miles of book. Well, one last pass with my tepid water can. Before that, I just want to factoid everybody. Uh, one of the little kids in the 80s theme bar is like, why are you going to use your hands? That's for babies. One of those kids is Elijah Wood, and this was his first film part. So ah. there we are, factoid, ladies and gentlemen. This is educational, this podcast. But my tepid <laughs> watering can uh, demands it be passed just for one more sprinkle over this. And that's the character of Biff. Now, Western Biff being a murderer is fine. It's a different character. Uh, but 1950s Biff, 
he's a bully. In the first film, he's just a bully. And as soon as someone properly stands up to him and puts him in his place, he cowers down because at his nature, he is a coward like all bullies. But all of a sudden, because he has to become the uber villain of the trilogy, he turns into a psychopath. And when they go back to 1950s again in the past, they're, they're literally fighting with him to the death to prevent him from going off with the almanac. I mean, he's literally trying to kill them. And he's a, suddenly he's gone from being a bit of a lecherous douche with, with Marty's mum to being actually obsessed with her his entire life, which he clearly wasn't in the first film. He was just being a bit of a lecherous douche. He try. He probably was that kind of sleazy guy of most girls, I would have thought. But you need him, right? I mean, you need you need that kind of character, surely, because the story becomes more and more larger than life. You I suppose surely... it's it's more of a comment that he, he kind of devolves into a more of a kind. Well, you know, he's just kind of a bully before, whereas now now he's a murderous. It just seems a bit of a, a devolution. Well, I mean, I think you can explain uh, most of that because obviously, in reality, uh, the. Uh, reality prime of back to the future biff does not become obsessed with lorraine yes you're quite right because you see in the present where he's a auto detailer and in the future where he's a crotchety old man uh that he is not in any way obsessed with lorraine it's only after uh, future biff gives him the almanac that he that then the the alternative version of him is obsessed with with Lorraine and then you have to consider that possibly it's this idea of well you know Marty gives that very flippant speech about yeah yeah I'm all for, for the philosoph- philosophical implications of time travel but what's wrong with making a few bucks on the side am I right and it's almost like the disenchantment with the 80s is setting in to the scriptwriters because what they say is well yes but if you held in your hands in 1955 45 years worth of winning betting you know in a crib sheet what kind of effect would that have on your psyche once you did it properly accepted that this was a magic book that was going to give you all the money that you wanted. How would that affect a normal? No, I'll just before, just before the almanac in the second film. I'm quite sure in the 1950s he's shouting off the radio, "You're going to be mine, right? You hear me? You know." So, uh, before... oh yeah, but that's because he goes and sees her in the street. Yeah, but, uh, but that's not obsessive. He's yeah, he's latching over her again. I mean, there is an implication that he does actually. I mean, she's got two friends. He never picks on them. It's always her. So it is uh, reasonable to assume that in the 1950s he did like her. But that you know, and then that becomes something more because of the well, he, later. He should have thrown himself in front of her dad's car because then he would have been in there for sure. Well, exactly. That's all he needed to do was get up the tree with a pair of binoculars and fall out, and he would have been straight in there. Uh, but if only he had known. If only he had known. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it has to be said that, uh, you know, two out of the three of us, for, for, although the other two are perfectly fine feature film movies, Back to the Future 2 has a special place in my heart and is therefore my favourite also, oh, no. just because of how bonkers it is. I do appreciate it's the like, time travel shenanigans. I just have squibbles. I have my water and can of tepid water. It's not hate, merely tepid. Yeah, but it's still, yes, it's, it's, I mean, just, I was quite intrigued to find that it was Justin's favourite of the trilogy as well. Uh, so it's Robert Zemeckis' favourite movie he's ever made. It's my favourite of the trilogy. It's Justin's favourite of the trilogy. It's your least favourite. Well, so, you know, that's you just go. like your opinion, <laughs> dude. Yeah, that's just like your opinion, man. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, I do remember, as I was going to say, I do remember in the cinema, uh, being disappointed by the way that they portrayed the future because, and I think that's, it, interesting because 
as a child, I couldn't really understand how much obsessive detailing had gone into the museum of the 1950s, of the middle bit. Although on some subconscious level, I must have appreciated they are actually trying to show me what the 50s kind of looked like in a very short, compressed kind of can. So, I, yeah, I guess I kind of did walk into the same one with the expectation that they were going to do some proper uh, futurism, which was interesting because Steven Spielberg did eventually try to curate a vision of the future yeah. in Minority Report and yeah. in AI, but because AI kind of goes a bit further out on that respect, that Minority Report is more his, what is the future actually going to be like um, kind of question, which they didn't really bother to ask at all in that. So I was sort of disappointed. And then halfway through, when it goes bonkers, I remember being in the cinema going, well, that's not what I expected at all. And at the time, it was kind of unpleasant because I... I had been expecting one thing and I got something else. But in retrospect, I'm like, well, yeah, that was a bit of a, they really got me there. And then at the end, when the car disappears and then the guy from Western Union shows up, it's like, touche, my friend, touche, as the letters delivered from, you know, 1885. And you're like, okay. But it has to be said, it didn't really set me up with great hopes for the third movie, which uh, is another thing I have to be thankful for uh, to, to, because when I went to see the third movie, going, I suppose I'll go and watch the end then. And I came out and I'd had a really good time. And I was like, well, you know, the second movie kind of sets you up for that. And then it's only later that you realise that the whole thing does kind of hang together in a way that many movie trilogies really don't. Yeah. Um, that's that's one of the things. It is. It is. It does all hang together. Um, it's interesting that uh, in a way, in the third movie, that the least amount of stuff happens. I mean, there's not anything very complicated when they're in 1885. Actually, it's because the pacing, the pacing is is of a western film. Yeah. Rather than the kind of action adventure kind of fast cut stuff that the first two have, the pacing totally reverts to a Western. So think, so it takes its time. It's a real change to the first two. Yeah. All I was going to say was what's really interesting is that the first two movies, 95 minutes in and out, no problem. Yeah. The last movie does have it, it is the, you know, the third of the Lord of the Rings trilogy of it in that it goes a full one hour and 50 to finish off the whole story. So that's all I was going to say was that, yeah, the least happens again. It has the longest runtime. Yeah, well, I think, I think because everyone just gets fixated on the Western part, but it's, it's, it's a little while until they get to the Western part, and then he has to mill around with his ancestors in the Western. Then he has to find Doc Brown. Then there's a confrontation with Biff. I mean, then he has to, then they have to meet, uh, the teacher, Cla- Cla- what's her name? Clara? What's her name? Uh, Clara. Clara, another time traveler called Clara. There we go. Uh, so, so there, there's an awful lot going on in, in Western, in, 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 the, in the third film. I think people kind of compress it down to, oh, then he meets, then he meets Doc and they have to go on a train adventure together. Um, Yes, and third film. Are we there now, gentlemen? Are we, have you arrived at the third film? Well, I think we spent quite a long time dickering over the, the yes. second movie and the events therein. So, yes, I think we are. I, I, let's go straight to the end because uh, that's out of sequence. It's time travel. I really enjoyed the sort of train climax of this film. Brilliant. I felt that was a fitting... Because we kind of dispense with the villains. It's not a showdown with a villain ending. It's a problem ending. And I enjoy the fact it's a good, it's a good problem. We can all get a head around. I like the fact that Doc kind of jumps off and rides away on a hoverboard with, the, with his newly discovered love of his life. That was, and that door all just seemed really nice. And the train explodes very nicely at the end. There was a good, good tension building sequence. I felt well done one and all for that. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is that what I real, what I noticed was, I mean, you spend a good 20 minutes in the, in, in, um, 1950s at the beginning of the movie, which people kind of forget because the second movie obviously ends with Marty running up to Doc the minute that the original Marty yes, had got back. And ironically, yeah. it means that the sequence of him going back to the future happens in every single movie. Mm. Yes, indeed. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so, uh, the third one picks up at that point. And so people kind of mosh that together, which is a testament to how well the trilogy hangs together, that it is one sequential story, even though the second movie does introduce things that only pay off in the third movie and, you know, only kind of tokenly follow. I mean, I think that's possibly one of the reasons why they felt they needed to tie the second movie into the first movie a bit more, um, because, the first movie is supposed to be standalone and so they, they wanted to make it all uh, glued together for some reason which I don't quite know I mean the point is that there's a line of least resistance in Hollywood and they could have just gone nah screw it uh, but they didn't they actually took this time to obsessively craft I mean the other thing is that you get sort of the manure thing happens in all three movies yeah. in slightly different exactly. circumstances and him waking up in a darkened room and having the light put on by his mother stroke you know uh, uh, who is young or uh, now married to Biff or actually one of his distant ancestors you know and it's always oh, I had the strangest nightmare that this was happening you know th- there are th- recurrent moments that happen but yes the actual scene of him going back to the future from the first movie does also reoccur uh in and the actual moment reoccurs in all all the movies in one strain or another you go the one thing that does actually happen is doc brown dancing down the street in between the fire trails you may not actually see the dis, the delorean disappear but you always see the doc dancing go woo my time machine works and then you know that there comes uh, Marty. It is kind of funny, the idea that after that moment of the first film, the very next thing that happened after the camera cut was that him in a, like, Michael J. Fox in a leather jacket and a hat comes running around the corner going, yeah, there's been a bit of a problem, <laughs> you see. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that's, that's pretty hilarious. So that means that all told, they only spend about an hour and five minutes in the Wild West, which is possibly why, although it's, it, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of paced slower at the same time. They don't really hang about because what they're really doing, because 20 minutes of that hour and five minutes that you spend in the wild mess is one massive action sequence with yeah. the train. And the, I mean, yes, the other genius part is that in the first film, the problem is trying to generate the power for the flux capacitor, which they solve with the, the Mr. Fusion. And then in the last movie, it's trying to get to 88 miles per hour because that's not so easy in 1884. Well, the, first of all, it's like, you've got to save Doc Brown's life. Then it's like, oh no, now Marty's going to die. We've got to save Marty's life. And then once Biff's done with, then we can go through the time travel shenanigans and get out of this, get out of, the, get out of cowboy land. Yes. So, although to a certain extent, the whole disagreement, well, apart from the fact that there's, they've kind of established this thing where it's always the same characters, more or less, going through the same kinds of things over and over again. There's also the thing of, well, we have to somehow find a way to dump Mad Dog Tannen in manure. So, yes. you know, it, uh, I thought Clara was a, a nice addition to the cast. Uh, any disagreements? I thought it was quite nice to give Doc a romantic storyline. You were not expecting that, were you? A romantic storyline for Doc. 
Well, I think that a part of it is that, you know, with the one exception of the fact that, that Marty has to get back to 1985 somehow, all his problems are pretty much solved by the end of the second movie. So let's, you know, they had obviously, when they had the, this, you know, they planned two and three back to back. Well, let's make the third movie really Doc's movie, that this is, you know, Marty's just got a sort of side problem and that it's all about Doc. And it kind of, what's it really interesting is that they also dealt with the fact I don't know. I mean, they must have been known when they were doing the story because they went round to everyone and went, hey, we're going to get to make a sequel. Isn't that great? And everyone went, yay, except for Crispin Glover. It went, eh, not really interested, to be honest. Uh, and so I think what they, also, the introduction of Clara does is it bookends the fact that in the first movie you have George McFly, who never appears again. And in the last movie you have Clara, who hasn't appeared up until that point. And in the second movie you just have everybody who's in the middle. And that kind of so the characters of George McFly and Clara bookend the well, trilogy. Well, the, 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 the inside scoop was he was asking for more money to come back, and so they said, "No, we'll do it without you. Thank you very much." Yeah, and, yeah, so they had Michael J. Fox in the background pretending to be his father, and then the actor thought, "I'm going to get lawsuit on you because that's my character, and you're not paying me any money for it." So there we go, Hollywood for you. But that's why he yes. stops out of existence. Well, Crispin, well, Crispin Glover is a bit mental, so you know as his later works uh, proved. But, uh, I mean, as we're, as we're sitting in this position, just to talk about the third one, uh, I'm going to uh, give you a little extra Christmas present here, Ian. What I realised watching it at the end is that in the creation, so, I mean, this has to be an accident, but in the creation of all the alternative versions of the 19, you know, 1985 prime characters across all the worlds that you visit in Back to the Future, the Aristotelian elements are invoked once more. Because where do Marty's parents meet? They meet at the enchantment under the sea ball, water. What is it that alternative Biff does in alternative 1985? He reclaims toxic waste, which for some reason requires very tall chimneys, which spout fire all the time. And what's the signature of 2015? It's that everything flies in the air. And of course, Westerns are covered in dust. And ah. indeed, so the four worlds that Marty visits do actually tie in to the Aristotle. I mean, in a very clear way. You know, it's all about the railway and the coal and the fuel in the in the in the um, Back to the Future. So yes, it, it, I was struck by this. It's like there is no way that they actually thought that through. It just happened by accident that each time period relates in some clear way to one of the Aristotelian. Elements. So what you're so, saying yeah. is that Back to the Future 2 has two, uh, you know, uh, elemental forces in it, of fire and air. Well, then it's obviously the best one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also re- refers back to water uh, in the sense that they go yes. back to the, the 50s. Well, But yes, now it's each world that follows an element, not. And yes, so they happen to pass through two of them in the second one only. And therefore, yes, I suppose they are invoked. But it was very clear. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know. I don't understand. It's very interesting to see the way that a bunch of people come together and the set designers go, well, I mean, you know, there's no actual need for Biff to run a toxic waste reclamation plant. He can just make money from betting. And well, yet, you know, for some he has to be doing reason, something that's very assholey, isn't he? He has to be. Well, yes. And it requires big, tall chimneys with fire coming out of them. So that they look out of the. I mean, it's got kind of Mad Max and Blade Runner. Uh, that's the other thing, which is kind of weird about. Yes, bad 1985 is like the post 
post-apocalyptic movies that we've seen elsewhere. Yes. It's like, okay, uh, yes, way to feel good about life there. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, when you go into three and you, people go, oh, that's the one that's in the Wild West. It's like, only about half, well, just over half of it happens in the Wild West. But a lot of it doesn't happen in the Wild West, which people seem to completely forget. Well, you can say this the same about the first one. There's a, there's a good half hour before they get to 1950s in the first film, surely. Yeah, I think people kind of accept that because they, no, but they do think of it as 1985 and 1955. It's like, you know, they're given equal airtime because that's the whole point I think of it's the, the whole third movie. one. You feel like they're living in it. I think because you're seeing it through Doc's eyes, it's not like people visiting a time and then doing a, solving a problem and then going, which you kind of get the sense with the other films. They're like, they, there's a task to be done. And I know there's tasks to be done in the third one, but you also get a sense of, you know, this is a place that they're staying in for a while. Yeah. I get that feeling, you know, even though it might not be represented entirely by the screen time, it's just that everything does seem to slow down a bit. Well, I think there's a big, I mean, you know, the second one, again, gives um, indications that uh, I, I think that when you said, well, we're going to do a second movie, well, that means that we have to pick it up when they've been to the future. I think they probably toyed with the idea. What happens if we just start the second movie with, well, I'm glad we sorted that out. Hey, I'm sure that that probably was pitched, you know, and then we'll do something else. I think they felt overwhelmed at the idea of building the future. That's why there's so many throwaway gags in it, because they were like, well, we can't possibly do with the because we don't know because it's the well, future. If we just look at the mechanics of it all, uh, I mean, we have we've seen this before the show. The whole thing about Marky doesn't like being called a chicken kind of comes out of nowhere in the second movie, as well as his, his impulse enough to, to, to cheat time and become a gambler, which has enormous consequences. So in many ways, you've got like a mirror. In the first film, he's going back in time and fixing his his parents' in, 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 non-optimal past. Then we learn Marty's future is pretty terrible as well. He's got to sort that out. As well, so that's kind of the the broad arc of it is he has to mature as a person and not care so much about what other people think, and uh, yeah, uh, not gamble presumably is another message. I know, I don't know. So yeah, the, the whole the whole the whole Mark doesn't like being called a chicken. Was that was that even hinted at in the first movie? No, not at all. Not even slightly. Nobody called him a chicken. I mean, the the presumption is because that obviously as they worked on the scripts for the second and third together, the key. I mean, this is what you know. This is what happens in your mind. I, in cr- strict chronology, what should happen if nothing, if there is no time machine or whatever, after he sets, if Doc doesn't come back and say, let's sort out your kids at the end of the first movie, the next thing that would happen is that Jennifer would turn up, he'd say, let's go out for a spin in my new suite 4 by 4 they drive down the road, literally, at which point, flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, leans over in his truck and says, let's have a race, because uh, what's the matter, are you a chicken? Then they race, then he crashes into a car and then the future happens the way that it happens in you know where these kids uh, he's a loser and he eventually gets sacked for the whole thing so the whole idea is that the only reason it didn't come up in the first movie is because we didn't see the five minutes after the end of the movie that literally within 10 minutes of the first movie he was going to get caught in a massive auto crash that would ruin his hands and stop him being a rock star um, but you don't ever get to see that confrontation, which they set up because, um, you know, um, 
old, you know, well, Grandma Lorraine says to the kids, ah, well, of course, if he hadn't been in that auto accident that ruined his hands, life would have been very different in the second movie. And you only get to see the payoff to that where you actually see that incident right at the end. Of yes. The and indeed, if you haven't seen the second film, the whole thing about the you're fired thing disappearing with a piece of paper makes no sense whatsoever. But I do appreciate it's like they, they kind of saw the had to like, well, it's like the Rocky thing. The characters have to reset slightly. So there had to be a kind of, had to, it had to instill this kind of flaw in Marty for them to fix it over the duration of the next two films. Indeed. Indeed. So, so yes, I mean, it, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, the, we know these things about the circumstances about Crispin Glover demanding too much money to appear in a sequel and about, uh, the fact that nobody wanted to make the movie and that when they did make the movie, they presumed they wouldn't get a sequel and then they got one anyway. But um, it does not stop the fact that for some reason, you know, the people who worked on this movie, I mean, if, if, if Peter Jackson had been a thing in, you know, the 1980s or that whole kind of ethic to filmmaking, let the fans in and do all this, um, then we could have ended up with this kind of thing where, you know, you have the Back to the Future family where they all got together and it was like a, a sort of transcendent experience just being on the set. Because I, I can't believe that all these people, the set designers and the people who made the worlds of Back to the Future didn't feel some kind of sort of, because, you know, you keep going back to that village square in different set dressing and someone's obviously taking great glee in taking one location and redressing it and yes. redressing it. and trying Let's to have show that same crane shot every time as the establishing shot. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, all that is, is because it was in the eighties, we don't really ever get to see inside that, but maybe that's a good thing because, you know, apparently the making of documentaries of the Lord of the Rings trilogy are, a, are, a, you know, like a television series in and of themselves with characters and, and what have you. Um, so maybe it's best that, you know, the testament to Back to the Future is the existence of Back to the Future as, as a film trilogy. Um, Justin, Justin, which, you opine. Yeah. I feel you've been quiet for too long. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, you're you're saying it all, really. I mean, I think that um, I think it stands out uh, in my mind as just. And there's very few complete kind of trilogies out there that I enjoy. Every, and there's something about quite special about the Back to the Future trilogy that is just like the ending. I, I remember watching that, and it was so satisfying that I was really like. I'm happy that it all been resolved and it just felt like I didn't feel like I want to see another movie. You know, I didn't want to feel like I'm, I want to know where the doc goes off and what he's doing. It just felt like that's it. And that's a lovely thing. You know, that's just like, I will cherish these three films. And I very rarely get that feeling from anything I kind of watch. Um, and it's, you know, it stayed with me for years and it will be always something that I'll go back and watch. And, and as soon as I put one on, I'll want to watch the rest of them and I'll always enjoy it. It's just, it's coming something special, very special in, in cinematic history for me. Um, and I'm, you know, just very pleased that I saw it. I was around when it first came out in the eighties to, to kind of experience that. Definitely true that it's, it's a trilogy. It needs no more at all. No fourth, no reboots, no fourth, uh, back to the future, uh, cash grabs, please. It stands perfectly as it is. Although if you do want to further adventures, there's always the cartoon series. 
Yes, uh, let's not talk about that. <laughs> Due to the fact that I haven't seen it apart from anything else. And besides which, it is true that it's, you know, it, it is true that there's very few things that are designed to be exactly the length that they are. Um, and in, in Back to the Future, you get not one but two hits of that because the first film is designed to stand completely alone and the end's just a wacky gag. And then when you extend it, the three movies are designed to be three movies and that's really it. There really is no more and it's, it's so well kind of, you know, I think there was a certain extent to which they were like, well, when we finish this third movie, I don't want any executive going, well, that sold pretty well. We have to have another one. So they destroy the car with a train and the, you know, mm. and then the, the, the docks trade is kind of a joke. And, you know, it's so conclusive. Everything is tied up. Everything is, is, is put to rest in a way that even things like the Lord of the Rings don't. I mean, you know, Toy Story is another trilogy that I think people are generally agreed we can agree on that. But actually, each Toy Story film stands on its own, each one. And so, therefore, it doesn't have that thing where each part really talks about the other parts in a way that, you know, that I mean, I think that's why when two came out. Uh, people were very lukewarm to it because it had been quite a while since the first one. They didn't do that thing they now do at cinemas where you go, watch the first one and then the second one or whatever it is. So people had kind of got the first one in their heads when they saw the first one. But of course, they'd never seen the third one. So they were like, yeah, that was a bit strange. It was only when the whole grand design was laid out. I think that's another reason why people went to see the third one went, wow, that was amazing. I have to track down the second one and watch it again, even though I didn't like it. And then over time, because this is exactly what happened to me. I saw the third one. I went, ah, that all made a lot more sense now. And then when, you know, I got the opportunity, I was like, I watched them and I was like, you know, watching it yesterday, it's still marvellous. The way that it all hangs together and it's about the same length uh there were the mini series that we've mentioned before the lost room yes um yes it's the cinematic equivalent of that I think. yeah it's, it's the same length in well, time yeah, i have now seen the lost room ah uh, well we, we could we could talk about that uh at another time but what i'm saying is that's another thing that hangs together in yeah. that way so you know I, d- I, I disagree but it's a subject for another time Yes. Um, but no, I mean, what I mean is that the, it, it kind of forms a narrative which kind of goes from one end to the other um, and, and is, is just about the same length as well. And that's the intriguing thing. You know, what we're talking about is four and a half hours worth of entertainment. And there's very few things which are sort of four and, designed to be four and a half hours in length. Well, there we go. So, you know, or or to be short, curtailed like that. Because, um, I mean, if you're talking about your other great cinema things like the Harry Potter series of books and films, both are achievements in their own way. But again, I don't really feel I think each Harry Potter film stands on its own. Yes. It's that interdependence that is key. And, and yeah, as much as I love The Matrix and even have time for its sequels, they don't. And the second two of those are made back to back. So, you know, yeah, it, back to the future is king still never been bettered. And yes, certainly doesn't need a reboot. So it's the trilogy we can all agree on. The pop and toy story until the fourth film comes along in a few years time. Yes. Well, and I think the, um, uh, and, and the joke about the, um, What's really funny, what's become even funnier over time, they've even put one in for the future generations to watch, is that 
now there's like a meta joke about uh, Marty's body warmer from the first movie. Because in 1985, all the 1950s, stupid 1950s people not knowing what a body warmer is. Again, oh, you're in the Navy. You must be a sailor because you're wearing a life preserver. <laughs> like that. Well, body warmers were a thing. They came and they went in the 80s. And so now from 2015, he does look kind of stupid in that body warmer. And so you now understand why the 1950s people are confused from a different point of view. And it's only the guy from the 1980s is like, look, it's a body warmer. All right. <laughs> I had a body warmer. I had a body warmer. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> You're not one of the cool kids, Justin, clearly. I, I seem to remember at that time wearing 50s inspired clothes. So there you go. Who'd have thought? So uh, the big question that we're asking at the end of this show is, did you own a body warmer? If you want to tell us about your body warmer, <laughs> then there must be a place that you can go to tell us in confidence about that experience. Ian, where would that place be? Well, obviously, it'd be the Body Warmer Facebook page, which you can go and like. But personally, would rather you go and like our, our podcast page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcaster, as well as links we find interesting. Uh, but podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and it's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T, ieskids.podomad.com uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts you must go to uh, leostableford.com where you can find not only a legacy of podcasts but also other things that I have deemed noteworthy uh, uh, in, in life. Uh, generally but uh, pictorial content on that blog tends to be you know scavenged from here and there about the internet if you want original visual stimulation where might they go for that justin uh, well you could find examples of uh, of, uh, of of such things uh including body warmer and my collective of, of illustrated body warmers throughout the 1980s uh on my deviant art page under my name justin.wyatt.deviantart.com uh, so there we are. And uh, of course, I suppose that's what it is. Uh, I, I don't know if I actually mentioned. Yes, no, I did. I mentioned the fact that obviously the reason we've done this at New Year is because this is 2015, the ultimate end of the uh, Back to the Future trilogy. Um, and uh, yes, so there we go. So uh, I suppose that behooves us to say Happy New Year to all you hoverboard enthusiasts. Out there. I'm looking forward to getting trying out the one I got for Christmas. It's pink just like the one in Back to the Future. Um, but uh, if I was going to go back to the past and change one incident in history, um, I'd uh, probably have told them not to bother. No, really, the reboot of RoboCop. It's just not going to work out. Just walk away now. doesn't matter how tactical you make it. If you were going to change one incident in history, Ian, what would it be? Oh, goodness me. I've, I've no idea. I was just thinking about, geez, if Back to the Future Part 2 is true, we've got about 20 Jaws films to get through this year until we get to October <laughs> yes, yes, it's when it's true. set. <laughs> we're up to four, so we need another 15 well, to get to Jaws 19 by October. <laughs> But I'm sure the Sci-Fi Channel are working on it now. Justin, any thoughts? Uh, well, you know, like mid '90s, I might, I might be going to Skywalker Ranch to have a word with a big man there. 
So basically, we've decided that the things that we would alter about history are the making of subpar sequels, prequels, and otherwise rubbish rebooted uh, film properties. But what better way and what better thing for the 80s kids to be doing with their time? I'm off to hydrate a pizza now because I'm a little bit peckish. Uh, and so I guess for me, that's uh, great, Scott. Goodbye. <laughs> it's Goodbye. Oh, you stole my great Scott gag. Oh, Sorry. I was oh. myself. What else does he say? Heavy. There we go. I got the other one. <laughs> Far out. Yeah, that's a weird thing. I just want to mention on the tail end of this, what I noticed was that all of the things that the 1950s and indeed 1880s people didn't understand that Marty said were in fact slang from the 1960s and not from the 1980s at all. Hmm. I, I thought the dad, 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 daddy-o gag was a good uh, recovery. Uh, well, in that case, then I've completely revised my opinion on Back to the Future Trilogy. It's rubbish. <laughs> we better leave. Bye. Let's go, we'll go back in time and make sure we don't make this podcast so Justin will still love this beloved trilogy. 